This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this says? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our last episode of this season of Behind Gray Walls. And our first episode of 2020. Woo! New Year, new new us. Yeah. Except not really. We'll probably stay the same format. Yeah. Thankfully. Probably, yeah. We'll see. I don't know. Give us some recommendations. Yeah. Uh, give us some critique. Help us improve this podcast if you can think of anything. If you're like, oh, this is great, leave a review. I'd love to hear that too. <laughs> it's a lot of fun work that goes into making this. Yes. And uh, we appreciate all of you listeners. I'll probably end the show saying the exact same thing. But thank you for even <laughs> tuning in this week. We have some good stories. Yes. This is a heavy-hitting episode. So... If you don't want to hear about some pretty graphic, horrible stuff, skip Mm -hmm. my whole entire section. Mm -hmm. Just my whole half is going to be horrible. Tough. It's going to be tough. So let's start with it. Let's start with it so we don't have to end with it. (laughs) All right. So I am talking about inmate number 5264, Douglas F. Van Vlack. My sources, of course, is Inmate File, Court Transcripts, Chronicling America, Ancestry, City of Tumwater website, The History of Tacoma from this art installation called Where the Rails Meet the Sails, which is really cool Hmm. in Tacoma, and the Oregon Encyclopedia article about Albers Brothers Milling Company. So, Douglas F. Van Vlack is born on July 1st, 1904 in Erie, Pennsylvania, and that's on the south shore of Lake Erie, Uh, and he's born to Carl and Edna Douglas Van Vlack, and his father was born in Silver Creek, New York, and his mother was from Dunkirk, New York. He had a a brother named Alan Van Vlack, who uh, was born in 1909, only lived two months, and Mm -hmm. died soon after. So this may be kind of somewhat the basis of everything that follows. Mm -hmm. In the 1910 census, the Van Vlack family is living in Tumwater, Washington, and his father, Carl, is working as a machinist in a bakery, and his uncle George is living with them, and he works at a brewery in town. Tumwater is the oldest permanent American settlement on the Puget Sound. Which I, did I thought, not know that. right? And it's never even heard of that place. It's it's known as the end of the Oregon Trail or the Cowlitz Trail, and it shares its boundaries with Olympia, Washington, and gets its name from the Chinook jargon word for a waterfall. So hmm. yeah, kind of kind of interesting things. I, Washington history is yeah. All Northwest history is yeah. pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 1920 census would jump ahead ten more years, so he's about. 1516. Uh, he's living in Olympia, Washington with his parents, and his father is working as a mechanic in a, a shop while his mother is a claim adjuster in the industrial transfer company. Okay. Yeah, so she's a working mom, mm-hmm. and, and both parents are working, and 15-year-old Douglas is going to school. 
Uh, in the mid-1920s, he's listed as living in Tacoma, Washington, in the city directory, and a student at the University of Washington, hmm. while his dad is still a mechanic or a machinist, and his mom gets a job as a secretary for this bridge clinic. Tacoma is actually the Indian name for Mount Rainier. Okay. Which I've never... I did never not know that. that. And it was actually chosen as the end point of the Northern Pacific Railroad. And there was this motto that went around, when rails meet sails, or when the rails meet the sails, because Tacoma has a deep water harbor connecting the intersecting transcontinental railroad with trade from Asia, from, hmm. from the east. So hmm. many... Future letters would talk about Douglas's time in the 1920s and early 30s as this young man constantly playing sports, tumbling, you know, gymnastics, mm -hmm. golf, swimming, and he was always very sportsmanlike and gentlemanly on the court. That's how okay. he was described as. And he spent a lot of time at the y YMCA working out and swimming and doing all those things. And his classmates actually even said he was really, really smart, really intelligent. At the University of Washington, he was taking courses in civil engineering, and that was apparently his dream as a kid. But after about two weeks, he drops out of school, and he goes to St. Martin's School, and he lasts two weeks before dropping out. Hmm. He returns to Washington State, took courses in business administration for about a year, and then drops out after 10 days into his second half, uh, the second year of these business courses. So it just seemed like college life was not for him. He was good in hmm. high school. He seemed he was kind and intelligent and a hard worker, but something was going wrong with him. He actually decided to skip town and take a bumming trip. And he actually took a boat over to Japan in 1925. And I actually found a Washington passenger and crew list from November of 1925 of a five foot, 10 inch tall Douglas Van Vlack arriving from uh, Yokohama, Japan on the ship called the President McKinley, <laughs> uh, which was just kind of fun. So he bummed around San Francisco and worked as a recluse there and worked at a bank. And then finally in 1927, he returns to Tacoma. He gets a job as a banker in 1928, he seems like he loses that job. He starts working as a clerk. 1930, he decides to move out of his parents' house, and he's renting with some friends of his, other fellow 20-somethings named Ned Ramsey and Anthony Silveria. Douglas is working for this Air Redarshan Company, which I don't know if that was a misspelling in this in this record. Redarshan? Because there's -E Air Reduction, which is oh. like a manufacturing company where you you know, create oxygen mm -hmm. and pure, purified oxygen right. and all these things. But uh, I, I saw the word airy darshan and I dug and dug and went down, you know, tried to find all different things <laughs> in Tacoma of an airy darshan company and no idea. Anyway, huh. he doesn't have that job for long anyway because okay. he can't seem to hold jobs. 32, he is listed as working for the Albers Brothers Milling Company still living in Tacoma, still on his own at this point. And the company, it started in Portland, and they were like one of the biggest mill companies for cereals and flour and oats in, in the country. He had a pretty big job doing mm -hmm. this, selling goods. Right. Uh, 1933, he's still there. And it's one of the biggest years for Douglas. He's got a steady job as a clerk for this milling company. His father continues to work as a machinist, and his father is in the Olympia Elks Lodge, so he's part of the Masonic Society. 
So he's getting really connected in the city. Mm -hmm. His mother is promoted to the credit manager of the Bridge Clinic, which, you know, this organization covered the whole state of Washington. And she would later serve as the house mother in this for the nurses that worked at this clinic, Hmm. basically prepare meals and make sure that they were happy and healthy and good. She also served as the board of directors of the Tacoma Women's Breakfast Club and the treasurer of the Retail Credit Association. Very well regarded yes. in this town. And yes. she was constantly helping with all these charitable organizations and, you know, buying poor families Christmas presents and doing all kinds of things, making meals before even coming home and making meals for, for Douglas and, mm-hmm. and their father. Okay, so again, just like a couple of weeks ago, I really am concerned as to where this is yeah. going to turn because he seems like he's got everything going he's for got him. everything going for him. Unfortunately, he loses his job. At the mill company. Okay. So he leaves the apartment with his friends and returns to his parents' house. And he's 29 years old. No, no problem with that. No. Yeah. Listen, in this economy, truly you have to do what you have to do. Right. No shame. Yes, no judgment. And this is in the 30s? This is, yeah, 1930s, so, yeah. I mean, depression. and. So while he's at home one day, he hears a neighbor girl shouting for her dog, Buster. Ah! So he decides to go outside and help her out. Her name is Mildred Hook. And Douglas is immediately smitten with Mildred. And they start a secret relationship. He didn't have a job or prospects or the approval from Mildred's family. Okay, I was to like, why date. is it secret? Because she's 20 years old and he is 29 years old. Okay. This secret relationship ends up turning into something much bigger on July 28th, 1933, Uh-oh. when Douglas grabs Mildred. They go to Shelton, Washington, and secretly get married. Oh. Yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> well, they return home, and he drops her off at the house and goes home, and they oh. live separately. They continue Awkward. this secret relationship so weird. for several weeks. Uh, so Mildred's backstory. Almost, sorry, almost oh, yeah. because... They he just they couldn't get family approval. Exactly. So, I mean, you'll probably go into this. So then is she sort of a higher... Well, but I don't know, though, because he's also sort of like his family right. is well regarded. Yeah. So yeah. is it just because he can't keep a job? Okay, tell me more. Sorry. Yes. So Mildred, she's born in Helena, Montana, July 18th, 1913. And her dad is from London. He was born in London and, his, and her mother's from Provo, Utah. Her father was... His name was Joseph Hook. And he would been he had been a cowboy, a prospector, a cigar store owner, and an author of more than 135 stories and books. Wow! Uh, many of them were published in pulp magazines, which were huge hmm. in uh-huh. the 20s and 30s, right. 40s, 50s, 60s. You know, and I actually found only two of them that were digitized, and they were westerns that he he mm. wrote called Trail of Death in 1938 and Ghost Camp Gamble in 1939. But I mean, he wrote for Detective Story magazine through the 20s and 30s and into the 40s. Several, like A Bum's Break, A Bum Deal, Grim Souvenir, Raw Recruit, 11th Hour, Coffee and Sinkers. Like here are just a couple (laughs) names of some of the stories he wrote. And now for those of you, I mean, you can't see his notes, but Anthony has literally taken half a page to list out (laughs) as many as he could find of what what joseph hook wrote i i was just like because they all all these newspapers later they talk about joseph hook's writing and they compare 
everything <laughs> to his writing. And it was like, okay, but what did he write? Because I couldn't I find anything. You. So then okay. I had to just start going through. Luckily, there are these crazy societies. Not crazy. Totally normal. <laughs> people who love pulp magazines and the history of these yeah. things. And they are fascinating. I am now like... I have several of them printed now and oh, plan on reading them nice. this weekend. So if anyone listening wants them, <laughs> let me know. I will post at least these two Westerns that he wrote because they're so fascinating. But uh, seem the marriage between Douglas and Mildred was anything but picturesque. Their relationship would culminate in a story as bizarre as any Mr. Joseph Hook ever created. Okay. That's how they describe okay. what would happen next. So... They didn't live together, as I said, and they didn't tell their parents for several weeks. Douglas was jobless for about two months after their marriage and couldn't afford an apartment. Mildred had a job working with the Washington Gas and Electric Company as a cashier. So they didn't have a lot, but after they started to reveal this to their family, Douglas finally got a job. They actually move out, and they move into 801 North I Street in Tacoma, Washington. Early on, it's noted that Douglas was drinking a little bit too much and was already getting abusive with Mildred. Oh, this boy. is super early in their relationship. It came to a head uh, in November 1934 when actually Mildred files for a divorce on November 29th. It isn't noted what caused the first rift, but it seemed that things calmed down when Douglas got this job working for a delicious ice cream and dairy company as a driver. And he was working there in the 1935 directory, and Mildred stopped filing the, the paperwork for divorce. Unfortunately, he couldn't hold down this job and was fired several months later. So soon after, he finds another job as a truck driver for the Meadow Sweet Dairy as a dropping off milk mm -hmm. in front of people's homes. But he's fired soon after for insubordination. In September of 1935, during an argument over money with Mildred, Douglas pushes her down a flight of stairs no. and locks her outside of the apartment. Oh my gosh. I have a photo of 801 of the the house, mm -hmm. the apartment that they were living in and it's it's a huge flight of stairs. Like if it's the main one that he did it from. Jeez. It's gone with the wind style. I don't oh. know if you've seen that movie, but I have it. Okay, well. <laughs> those of you you those of you who have know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Mildred actually tried to break back in she broke a window trying to get back in and ended up cutting herself and bruising herself and not wonder, getting back into the house i mean was it I, I don't understand why you'd want to go back unless it had something to do with the arguments right you're just like that worked up that you're just like oh you're gonna do that to me yeah. well let me show you totally oh, sad oh so heartbreaking so she goes back to her parents house she files for a divorce charging douglas with burdensome home life and spousal abuse She's granted a restraining order from him, and she files a complaint over theft because the next day he had actually taken all of her clothing and jewelry and belongings and literally dug a hole and buried them. Oh, I thought you were going to say burned it, which... <sighs> so he's arrested okay. September 15th, 1935 for this theft of huh. her clothing. They dig up her clothing, return them to her. Most of it's it's all moldy and rotten Ugh, gross. and gross, uh, but she drops charges against him. So they both returned to their parents' houses. And you remember, they lived just around the block from mm. each other. So on October 11th, 1935, Mildred is finally granted a divorce from Douglas Van Vlack. So 
very short marriage. She tried to return to normal life, and Douglas became very despondent. He started to stalk Mildred. Mm. A week after the divorce, he actually grabs her off of the street, mm. brought her to his house, mm-hmm. tied her up. No, 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 no. And assaulted her. Ugh. She went to a physician uh, the next day, and he confirmed that she had been sexually assaulted and, and all this stuff. This all come out in the trial. Ugh. Still, no charges are brought up. A couple weeks later, on November 14th, Douglas does the same thing. He forces her into the car, binds, yeah, oh binds her gosh. wrists, and assaults her again. And the next day, she files a complaint for the assault, but when she learns that he could be locked up for 20 years in prison, she drops the charge. Uh, okay. uh, later in the week, her father, Joseph, actually goes to the district attorney's office and demands that Douglas be charged with kidnapping. There were newly written laws that made the potential punishment for kidnapping execution. But the DA told Joseph that Douglas never asked for a ransom, so he couldn't charge him with that. Okay, so I don't know if you would know this, but why... Why go for that instead of going for, like, sexual assault? Or did they just not have... Well, that that's... They actually changed it to abduction and assault. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because... Yeah, but I think he's... He, it was pretty big in the news. Right. That kidnapping, now yeah. you could be executed for And so that's crime. why he's going... Because, exactly. I mean, I don't yeah. blame him for wanting that particular right. punishment. So. Yeah, yeah. And... Not once, but twice. That's horrific. Mm-hmm. Totally. Ugh. It's... Oh. And, and Douglas is, he's fully aware now. Joseph had been pestering the two for pretty much their whole relationship. Mm-hmm. And aware of what was coming next, he stole a, a Remington UMC Model 51 semi-auto pistol and a holster from a friend of his and hid out from authorities. Oh boy. He told the friend that he stole the gun from that he was going to take Mildred to Mexico. No, that's... Right. On November 23rd, 1935, Douglas trails Mildred and her good friend Doris Clark, who's a student nurse at the hospital in Tacoma. They were on their way home from work and had just stepped off the streetcar walking north on Mason Avenue when Douglas pulled the car over onto the sidewalk in front of them. Oh, gosh. Doris noted that he smelled like liquor as he pulled out a pistol. Mildred and Douglas argued for several minutes before Douglas yelled that if she didn't get in the car in the, in the next 30 seconds... He'd shoot her and kill himself right there on the spot. Mildred handed her purse to Doris, who attempted to intervene and pull her away, but Douglas grabbed his crying ex-wife, shoved her in the vehicle, slammed the door, turned to Doris and told her to tell Mildred's father, Joseph, that if anyone set the police on their trail or tried to interfere, Mildred would be dead. Douglas got in the car and sped off. Okay. So Doris, being a good friend, immediately went to joseph and told him what happened right. and joseph being you know a, a worried father right. do you think he called the police or did he uh well i it's hard because there's a there's two I way know. you can go the right. like legal route or you can go the vigilante justice route yeah Ugh. he's a true crime writer yeah i'm gonna maybe think vigilante justice no, no, he he actually calls the police okay. right then and there and okay. says, "Get on this guy." So they actually put an APB out to capture these two in Douglas's 1931 Ford Model A coupe, and it was you know suspected that they were going to head south, mm-hmm. right along the coast, down through California <laughs> to okay. Mexico. They stop in Portland, where Mildred actually is allowed to call her uncle and tell him that she's all right, but. 
she's being forced by Douglas on this journey. And at Salem, hoping to trick the police waiting for him on the highway south, Douglas actually turns on the highway east and heads towards Boise. So after a whole day of driving, they actually arrive in Boise and check into Hotel Boise on November 24th, now known as the Hoff Building in front of the Capitol uh, mm-hmm. on 8th and Bannock. And the building actually originally had 400 hotel rooms, 10 apartments, but in 1976, it was renovated to hold offices, right. which it still does today. The next morning, while checking out of the hotel, Douglas sends his parents a telegram stating, sorry to do this, but everything is okay. While Mildred sends one saying, I am all right. Hope to be home as soon as possible. So she's still hopeful. And and I guess what's the long-term plan here? Go down to Mexico and live? Go down to Mexico and kill her? What's Do I, we know any sort of... I think it's to live a brand new life without okay. the authority of Joseph Hook, okay. who Douglas feels is the only one preventing him from having the the loving relationship with his ex-wife yeah uh, that's the only thing the whole reason exactly not that you are a it's horrible not, person not the alcoholism and the abuse or anything like that okay. so authorities are alerted about the telegrams immediately spurring one of the largest manhunts in idaho history november 25th 1935 douglas and mildred are driving through southern idaho and state highway patrolman Vontaine cooper and deputy sheriff henry givens are stationed near buell about 16 miles west of twin falls and they spot the car answering to this description of van flax at around 2 p.m they attempt to hail down the car but douglas speed right by so they pursue it and finally overtake him forcing douglas to stop on the side of the street both officers get out of the vehicle and they are aware that this man is considered armed and dangerous and deputy sheriff givens actually comes to the driver's side door and says get out Douglas asked why they wanted him out, and the deputy said, Never mind that. Get out of the car. Douglas had his hand on his gun. And when Officer Givens started to pull Douglas out of the vehicle, physically grabbing him, mm-hmm. Douglas raises the gun. And instead of reaching for the, Douglas's hand to stop the gun, Givens actually reaches for his gun, oh, no. which gives Douglas You're enough right time to shoot Fontaine Cooper, who is standing to the side of, of Deputy Sheriff Givens. And the bull actually strikes Cooper through the left eye, pierces his skull, kills him instantly. Douglas then turns the gun to to Deputy Sheriff Givens and shoots him in the neck and the arm and the hand. Givens drops to the ground, seriously wounded. And Douglas closes his driver's side door and drives off. A Buell farmer named Clifford Hammond had been driving by as officers were approaching the vehicle and he watched the shooting and everything that happened through his rear view mirror as soon as he sees van vlack drive off he turns his car around he goes back to investigate and seeing that fontaine cooper had been killed he actually grabs the deputy sheriff puts him in the car and speeds off to the twin falls county hospital and there they get sheriff edwin f prater on the trail of this killing. He's the Twin Falls uh, sheriff. He immediately orders a dragnet, and roadblocks are set on all roads and highways leading out of Twin Falls County. Bridges and service stations were all manned with armed guards. Broadcasts are pushed over the radio describing the couple's vehicle, and there's a call for volunteers to help in the manhunt, and hundreds of posse men come to volunteer their time to find this killer. The Idaho National Guard actually opens their armory to the volunteers as guns and radios were passed out. Yeah, And hundreds of people, including Mildred's brothers, come to southern Idaho to Mm -hmm. capture Douglas Van Mm -hmm. Vlack before he kills again. 
reports come in that Douglas and Mildred are spotted near Kimberly, eight miles east of the shooting, and then Oakley to the south a short mm-hmm. time later. Okay. And at one point, he actually stopped at a service station in Rogerson, which is this little unincorporated community in Twin Falls County, and he asked the attendant about roads leading into Nevada. He seemed to know that officers were on his trail and either lost his way or he uh, wanted to throw officers right. off because he ended up going back north towards Twin Falls instead of traveling south through Nevada. He took a bunch of side roads, drove through farmland, and after several hours seeing his gas gauge nearly empty, he pulls over and parks the car in a dried-out ditch. Pulled out his, he pulled off his Washington plates from the vehicle and attempts to cover it with sagebrush. And night was falling and the temperature was dropping into the 20s. Gosh. The next morning, on November 26, 1935, Douglas's vehicle is found abandoned in the ditch. Searchers actually follow the footprints two miles north of Hollister and find Douglas lying cradled in the ditch, cold, disheveled, and manifestly thoroughly frightened, as they quoted. Okay, where's Mildred? Yeah, so the men who found him, they were actually three employees of the mechanical department of the Twin Falls News who had joined the main hunt after putting the newspaper to press earlier that morning, Mm -hmm. which I thought was so fascinating. And Douglas immediately surrendered his pistol to them, and, and they brought him to Sheriff Prater, and there's no evidence that Mildred was anywhere nearby. So they Were there, sorry, were there one set of footprints from the car? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so upon questioning, okay. Douglas said that he and Mildred had parted during the night because it would be better if they split, he said. Officers asked if he had slugged her or shot her or done anything to her, and he said no. But while investigating the gun that they confiscated from him, they discovered a long black hair stuck to the butt of oh, it. Oh, no. They knew something that was up. Yeah, in the jail, Douglas asked for some breakfast and quickly dozed off in his cell. He was just as comfortable as could be. For four days, Mildred is missing. It's it's super cold out. She's out on all this farmland. Nobody has spotted her. And they, they actually were worried that maybe she was hitchhiking home and she was worried about her connection to the murder of Fontaine Mm. Cooper. But Mildred's father was not entirely hopeful. When they interviewed him, he said that he had half given up hope of ever seeing her alive. He said he deduced her fear of death in her action of handing her purse to her friend Doris Clark before being shoved into the car. So with all of his his true mm. crime writing and everything, mm-hmm. he's like, you know, that is something that somebody who is pretty certain they were going to die would do. Huh. His fears were revealed when Mildred's body was found a day after Thanksgiving on November 29th, 1935, near Burger, Idaho under a railroad culvert. (laughs) Douglas had forced her to crawl in feet first into a 16-inch railroad culvert nine miles south of Twin Falls to get out of the cold, he said. And as she slid into the hole face down with her head still protruding, Douglas picked up a rock and bashed her in the head. Oh, my gosh. He then raised his gun and shot her in the same place he had shot Fontaine Cooper through the left eye. What? Her face was covered with dry blood, and her hair was matted with blood and tangled with straw. The rock, blood-stained, was found near the body. Douglas gathered up sagebrush and hastily covered her up before walking away. When the body was found, her father Joseph was interviewed, and he said he knew it all the time, that when they found his daughter, she would be dead. Douglas said, I didn't think at the time of killing her. We walked, I don't know how far, until we came to the Colford. We crawled in to get some sleep. I don't remember much about it except that I shot her. And I did it because I told her father I would. 
Are you serious? Yeah. Her brothers, they took the body back to Tacoma and refused to return to Idaho unless the prosecuting attorney called for their testimony. When asked what they felt, the older brother stated that our natural reaction is to see him hanged. Her younger brother, uh, he was choked with grief and declined to comment. Douglas was asked about his situation while in the cell at the county jail, and he said, I don't care a whole lot. I know what's going to happen to me, but I can't do anything about it. They'll hang me. I planned to take Mildred for a couple of months, and I knew somehow how it would all turn out. I did it, and now I'll have to take the consequences. Ever since we left each other, I hadn't been able to sleep more than a couple of hours each night. I just had to take her. The last three nights since I've been here in the jail, I've slept like a baby. I guess that's because it's all over. Maybe I'm tired. What? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he's held in the Twin Falls County Jail without bond, and he was extremely worried because he was hearing rumors that a lynch mob was coming to hang him. And he was seen repeatedly hastily jumping from his bed and putting on his clothes saying he wasn't afraid of legal execution, but he feared hanging by a mob. The sheriff kind of gave him like, he's like, you know, I trust the people in this town. I don't think any violence will come to you. (laughs) He kept guards posted for Douglas. And I read one newspaper account that a lot of women came and gave him food and What's gave that? him company while he was in jail. I will never understand. <sighs> I mean, because this is you. this is something that happens still today. Right. And I guess who am I to say what? I don't know. And I sometimes it's love, and sometimes it's just like I guess compassion. Mm-hmm. But I will never understand the people who like willingly like you know talked uh, i mean corresponding i think with people incarcerated is is fine but to do it with the intention of like falling in love with them right. is very weird to me yeah, or like yeah. and especially someone like Douglas Van Black who is clearly does not respect women who mm. has you know some kind of issue with them i think yeah. in order to perpetuate this violence against a woman that he supposedly loved i just think right, as a yeah. woman i would i would have many opinions and none of them would be would include bringing him any sort of food and, and comfort <laughs> right yeah and the newspaper they describe him as being handsome and really well connected and all this stuff which i think perpetuates that sure you know that ugh you know, captive audience. I, uh, listen, I don't care how how good you look. Towards. If you yeah. continually sexually assault and then <sighs> kill your mm-hmm. ex-wife, I don't really care what happens to you. And he seemed pretty open about everything that he did, which was, hmm. well, while he's in jail, when he gets right. on the stand, we see things kind of change a little bit. Okay. So he makes another statement in jail about the crime and set forth the tone of the trial. So this is what he says. She wasn't asleep when I shot her, but she didn't know I was going to do it. I'm sorry now. I'm sorry I ever met her. I'm sorry for the officer's folks and friends. If her folks had left us alone, we would have been all right. Let let me play you a tune on the world's smallest oh, violin. Right. Are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah, so here is his plan. We were going to Texas or Louisiana or someplace and start all over again. Now I'm here. She knew before she left Tacoma what was coming to her. I told her father before I took her that if he didn't leave us alone, I'd kill her. That's why I did it. Asked about the shooting of the officers, he said, I don't know, I guess I lost my head then. 
After two weeks of ups and downs while in the hospital, Deputy Sheriff Henry C. Givens actually dies from the gunshot wounds on December 8th, bringing his murders to three. Mm -hmm. Douglas admits to the officers that he had shot and killed his wife and the officers, but he refused to sign or swear to this confession. He said, kidnapping is a capital offense in Washington, and I thought I might just as well burn them up when talking about killing those police officers. Uh, He's worried that that he if would he get caught arrested. for something that he actually did. Oh, yeah, it's just... I mean, <laughs> I mean you're going to get a capital offense anyway for right. killing people. Like, <laughs> what, where, what, you're in Idaho. What's your plan, right. sir? Yeah. <sighs> uh, the widow of Fontaine Cooper is actually sent to the state mental hospital in Blackfoot oh, no. after That's having sad. a breakdown after his mm. death. And she wouldn't be released until January of 1937 after staying there for about four months. And... Mm. Her family and Deputy Sheriff Givens actually received $15,000 in insurance claims. Hundreds attended both of these men's funerals, including officers from Idaho, Utah, and, and Wyoming. Like, mm. I mean, this is this was huge yeah. news, and this was all over the country. Mm-hmm. Then there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of mm. newspapers yeah. documenting every aspect of this this whole crime and trial. So. Let's talk about the trial. It okay. lasts three weeks and costs the state $5,909.14 for witness fees, the meals for the jury and bailiffs, and the meals and gasoline in connection with the widespread manhunt for Douglas Van Vlack. Any idea of how much that would be in today's money? $5,909. Oh, $20,000? Wait, sorry, $110,000? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Almost 111000 yeah. And so I I just wanted to like look at contemporary death penalty trials and how much they cost. Mm-hmm. And it's it was fairly close. Really? Fairly equivalent to today. So the 2014 Idaho legislator actually did an evaluation on the financial costs of death penalties in Idaho. And unfortunately, there are a lot of incompletes. Like the cost for law enforcement is unclear. They don't have that, mm. you know, laid out. Mm-hmm. The Twin Falls County prosecuting and public defender fees came to just over $46,000, plus another $18,000 for attorney general costs. The Supreme Court doesn't track the cost for death sentence appeals, mm. but we can imagine that with the cost of the police and the Supreme Court and everything mm-hmm. else, it would probably be about that 110, Man, yeah, so $110,000. It's just, of course, it's Idaho. So mm-hmm. so we talk about financial things. We are right. very cons- fiscally conservative yes. state yeah. and everything in like the prison, you know, mm-hmm. everything you wanted, everything to just either be positive or come out even. Right. And so this, this is a big thing in the newspaper, yeah. how expensive this whole thing was. The trial was pretty wild. So the prosecuting attorney stated, I have no question in my mind as to Van Vlack's guilt. I'll try him on two separate murder charges. If he gets life imprisonment in the first trial, I shall immediately begin this next and bond every effort to obtain the most severe penalty for the two crimes, hanging. He has admitted without hesitation that he killed Officer Cooper, and although he denied having harmed Miss Hook, I am confident he killed her, and I hope to have his confession soon. And they uh, actually changed their minds. So they were going to go after him for Fontaine Cooper's death at first, but at the last minute decided to go after uh, the death of Mildred Mm -hmm. instead as his charge. The courtroom, every single day of the trial, is packed. 200 spectators, half of them are women, 
they pack this courtroom in and another hundred people are turned away every single day Mm -hmm. so that, you know, they all want to hear the shocking testimony going Mm -hmm. on in this trial. And Douglas Van Vlack stated, I told her folks I would kill her if they put the law on our trail. They knew I would. Like that was, that was right there. It was like, but I didn't kill her. Like you'll hear, ugh. At one point, the prosecutor is questioning Douglas on the stand. He asks about Douglas throwing Mildred down the flight of stairs. And Douglas got extremely angry on the stand and shouted, I want you to know I didn't throw her downstairs, and it's just about time you quit casting those insinuations. The prosecutor asks, is that a threat or a promise? And Douglas menacingly responded, that's a threat. But like immediately was like, oh, he recoiled and like apparently realized, oh, that was a bad idea. I should not have said that. His whole defense was insanity. He stated freely that what he had done is just like a nightmare. I know now that any sane man couldn't have done what I did. After thinking it all over, it is much more clear now, but I must have been insane to do what I did. In asking if Douglas cared what happened to him, he said no. The only thing he was concerned about was his father's feelings. Really? Like you're not even concerned about the woman that you killed or her family? Yeah. Yeah. And he had all these expert witnesses testifying on his behalf. His family is well-connected. They're wealthy. They can hire psychiatrists like Dr. Royal B. Tracy to come down and testify that Douglas was insane. But on the stand, the prosecuting attorney asked him about being retained by the Van Vlack family, and he admitted that, yeah, they paid me half there in Tacoma, and then they paid me the other half when I arrived here in Twin Falls. And basically, the testimony from all these expert witnesses Mm -hmm. basically said that Douglas had this fixed idea about taking Mildred and that he had two conflicting testimonies, one that he did kill Mildred and the other that he couldn't remember ever killing her or not. And that just added to the evidence that he was insane. Oh, he continually refused to ever remember killing Mildred. His mother took to the stand and insisted that he had been insane for several months during the divorce. But during her cross-examination by the prosecuting attorney, she just broke down in tears and was dismissed from the stand. The defense brought up Douglas's childhood, and he was seen as exceedingly bright until he fell off his bike in high school. And shortly after that, he fell off a large push ball. And it seemed to have damaged his brain in some way because he lost his ambition to become a civil engineer, his childhood dream. And it led to him flunking out of college and dropping out left and right. See, that was my question. Right. Did something As as we were going through Uh the story, because, you know, you were talking about how he was so smart and everyone said he was so smart and he was attending the University of Washington. and, And this is at a time that not everyone goes to college in the way that we do. Right. And so I guess just to see the shift all of a sudden where he's dropping out of school and can't hold a job. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. The prosecuting attorney, they grill him and they, you know, try to see, is he sane? And basically after this whole line of questioning, they realize that Douglas can clearly see right from wrong. Right. He is not an insane person. He may have hurt his head. He may have altered himself. But that is not enough to justify letting him go from this crime or giving him a lesser charge and sentence. Well, and have you heard this theory, and this is more about serial killers, but 
technically mm-hmm. I guess he is, but that that you know there are sort of three of the the hallmarks, and one is is cruelty against animals. Mm-hmm. One is I think bedwetting, and then the mm-hmm. other is a head injury when exactly. they're young. Yeah. Well, he is a little bit older if he was in high school when it happened, but right. still, your brain is still developing in high totally. school, and so if you injure you know a certain part of your brain, mm-hmm. it is definitely going to alter you. So that's yeah. Huh. Okay. So I know when I when I came across that in the testimony, I was like. Whoa, okay, maybe there is something to it. I mean, they have so many people up on the stand, and they grill all these doctors. Uh, The defense attorney actually grills one of these doctors who said that he was completely sane. And he asked the doctor about uh, his education and asked if he thought that the medical examination came under the umbrella of medical practice. And the doctor's like, yeah. So then the defense attorney asks where he had a medical license. And he's like, well, in Washington and not in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And the lawyer then says, well, it's a criminal offense in, uh, to practice medicine in Idaho without a license. Oh. And so he actually called for that doctor's testimony to be scratched from the record. Interesting. So it was like, uh, I think he had that on the back a burner for anybody. Technicality. Who, exactly, yeah. And this is just like one of the many performances that went on in the courtroom. Huh. And the bailiff continually had to warn the audience when laughter followed one of his quips, this defense attorney. And at one point, Douglas stated that Mildred would come to him as a ghost every night and tell him that she is very happy. Okay, is this Macbeth? Right. What? Yeah, and the prosecutor objected. He said, this is hearsay and very remote hearsay. And the defense attorney responded, if he's hearing things and seeing ghosts, that's his fault. Let it (laughs) it go. So Mildred's brother actually takes to the stand and talks about uh, taking Mildred to the doctor after one of those assaults. And this doctor goes up and he says, yeah, there were red rings around her wrists. The skin was rough. And there's evidence that she had had intimate relations. She was highly excited when she visited and nearly hysterical and told the doctor that she had been ravaged, which I like when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah. The defense stated that Douglas had a life marred with conflict and insanity. The poor boy used to stand by the window trying to get a glimpse of Mildred. They stated that they needed to think about the fact that Douglas had signed the confession about killing the officers, but he refused to sign a statement about Mildred's death because he had no recollection of it. The attorney blamed Mildred's father, Joseph, for sending police after Douglas. If he had only listened to the advice of others, you wouldn't be here today passing on the guilt or innocence of Douglas Van Vlack. No, yeah. what? Prosecuting attorney jumps on this, and they they were like, you can't condemn Joseph Hook for having Mildred in the first place and, quote, bringing her into the world as a temptation for this man. They have to have a target for their poisoned arrows. The only evidence there is that Mr. Hook ever said anything against him is the statement of the man who blew out the brains of Mildred Hook. Gosh. And the divorce papers by Mildred are prime evidence of their fraught relationship. Finally, the trial concludes on February 7th, and the jury deliberates for seven and a half hours Hmm. and pronounce Douglas Van Vlack guilty of murder in the first degree and vote to impose the death penalty. The judge sentences Douglas Van Vlack to hang by the neck until dead on April 3rd, 1936. He arrives at the Idaho State Penitentiary from Twin Falls on February 14th, 1936, and his intake Age 31, he's 5 feet 8 and a quarter inches tall, he's 170 pounds, he's stocky, his hair is black and curly, his eyes are hazel, he's born July 1st, 1904 in Erie, Pennsylvania, occupation clerk, 
and arrested November 27th, 1935, and sentenced to death. Now, in all death cases, there are so many appeals, right. and his whole file is oh, just a gotcha. box. Yeah, wow. it's, it, that's why my this outline is, why is fourteen you, his pages. Fourteen pages, and mine is five because she had like ten. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so immediately they they put appeals out, so it pushes his April third execution date back. His lawyers felt that they had a solid appeal based on thirty three alleged errors in the trial. They began appealing to the Supreme Court, and they uh, felt that Judge Alshi of the Supreme Court should be disqualified from listening because his son was Van Vlack's attorney. Uh, the Idaho Pardon Board, known as the Court of Last Resort, because they would ultimately decide if Van Vlack was executed or not, was seen as unjust because J.W. Taylor was one of the three members of that board, and he had been an assistant mm. in the prosecution of Douglas Van Vlack. Interesting. So, you know, he's not going to change the punishment that's what they're saying to this man that he helped convict and condemn to hang so february 4th 1937 douglas's appeal was denied by the supreme court again in may he is again denied another trial governor barzia w clark such a good name is it barzilla i always said barzilla but am i i don't i think i I listened to like one of those weird youtube things it was like (laughs) pronounce a name.com and then Barzia. I'm saying it Barzilla forever. I'm sorry. <laughs> Until someone can definitively say this is how you say it, I will call him Barzilla Clark because yes. it's the yeah. best name. <laughs> so he flubs in May by saying nothing is to be gained by the hanging of Van Vlack. To take his life would be no restoration to the families of those who are gone. Which sends shockwaves across Idaho and a letter arrived soon after from Mildred's parents which was copied and printed in the newspaper. And it states, We, the parents of Mildred Hook, were shocked at reading that you were opposed to the execution of Van Vlack. We respectfully remind you that when Van Vlack was asked by a reporter what he would have done had he escaped the posses, he replied that he would have returned to Tacoma and killed the girl's parents. This fiend has not expressed one word of regret for his crime. For the protection of society, we ask you to allow the sentence of the courts of Idaho to stand. Another letter arrives for the Secretary of State, Ira Masters, also a member of the Board of Pardons, Mm -hmm. stating, Governor Clark, by his statements, has left your state wide open to lynch law. If this fiend sentence is commuted by you, lynch law may prevail. So basically, if you don't kill him, we will. And Governor Clark, of course, being a politician, quickly responds by saying that the statement was made to find out what the public opinion is in the case. Oh, sure. Barzilla, buddy. Yeah, Listen. yeah. I, I, I didn't mean that. I just wanted to see what everybody else thought. <laughs> so, <laughs> not a good way to do that. Anyway, his inmate file is full of letters from 1937 for and against his commutation, and they are fascinating reads. It, it, it's probably my favorite collection of letters. Really? Yeah. Most of them are calling for the commutation of life in prison, hmm. and most of them said that they had met with Mrs. Van Vlack and spoken to her and thought that his execution would be a burden to her. In one letter from July, it says that Van Vlack and his family bore the very best reputation in this community, and I know it will about kill his mother if he is executed. 
Another letter from Luella Campbell from July ends with the question, Why should his sweet mother and kind father be made to suffer any further for a crime they had no control over? Another letter from Lola Cannaday, a friend of the Van Blacks in Olympia, wrote that taking his life would also take his mother's life. He is her only child, and they have always been very close to each other. Most of these letters for commutation had the same vibe, mm-hmm. that Van Black was held in high regard, and it would be a burden to his parents if he was executed. They said that he was a demented man and questioned how we could live in a society in which we would kill somebody who was mentally demented and insane. Uh, the neighbors of the Hook family who lived around the block from the Van Vlacks noted on June 30th, 1937, that they admired Douglas and his family and that Douglas was a happy boy in the 10 years that they had known him. But after he was married, his wife's family interfered so much, I could not help but see the difference in Douglas. He would sit for hours at a time and stare into space, and then again he would walk back and forth in his yard. My wife and I spoke of it several times and pitied him as we knew what a trouble his wife's family had caused. If it had not been for them, Douglas and his wife would undoubtedly now be living happily together. That is such a lame excuse to me. Victim blaming? like Totally. Well, and there are so many people who do not get along with their in-laws, who marry against their in-laws' wishes, and who don't kill their spouse. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not a good enough excuse, and it will never be a good enough excuse. Amen. I'm mad. So I am mad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So one of the parole board, Ira Masters, writes that much sympathy has been expressed for the parents of Douglas Van Vlack, and I am exceedingly sorry for them. But it is my belief that we must also feel sorry for the three other families who were robbed of their loved ones by this John Brown of the Northwest. So do you you know who John Brown is? I don't. Why don't you tell me about it? John Brown, this is such a strange thing ira brings in but he was a civil war era abolitionist he was a white man who helped lead all these armed insurrections and at one point he and a band of like 10 other individuals break into this virginia armory hoping to steal the guns and and arm the slaves and he's arrested and actually charged for treason and hanged for this crime he's the first person in our history to ever be hanged for the crime of treason for doing Mm. this Another letter arrives from a family friend that says that Douglas was unusually quiet and timid, but I observed him in his home and he was very well behaved and showed much affection for his mother. Later that month, Harold Keller, a member of the Tacoma Young Men's Christian Association, writes this letter that's not exactly helpful. I don't know. Okay. So basically, they had been on the tumbling team, gymnastics teams together, and he said that Douglas showed many times that he was a real fellow and a good sport. He, he didn't see him until he was the milk truck driver, and he actually was on his route in the neighborhood, and he noted that there was quite a change that had come over Douglas. It seemed he was always kicking about the work and the way the company did business. It appeared to me that he was always just a little dissatisfied with life as a whole. Hmm. In November, Douglas attempts to get another appeal to move his death date for the third time. More letters arrive right after this. An owner from a local Boise Mining Association writes that, As a taxpayer and a citizen of Idaho, I protest to any commutation of sentence for Van Vlack. The law should take its course. November 8th, one of the most interesting letters arrives from Eva B. Stunenberg, the widow of assassinated former Governor Frank Mm Stunenberg, and she actually meets with Douglas's parents. 
and they discuss the execution of their, of their son. And she writes that Mrs. Van Vlack was very desirous that I write to the board and request that you grant leniency to her son. I have not followed the history of the case and am in poor health anyway. Therefore, I do not feel in a position to make any plea to your body in regard to the matter. However, she continues by saying that I shall pray for you that you may receive divine guidance in your deliberations, that under God you may do that which you know is right. Hmm. One of the most adamant letters is from a Tacoma man, and his name is W.H. Wilcox, and he says, uh, If ever a murderer deserved hanging, this cult-blooded killer of three people should pay the death penalty. His plea of insanity is threadbare. He will be cured in a year or so, and such released to resume a career of crime, or work for a jailbreak, parole, or pardon. Any student of crime records knows that a large percentage of current major crimes are committed by paroled and pardoned convicts. Any mitigation of the death penalty in this case will certainly encourage other potential murderers to run the lessening risk of arrest, sentence, and serving it in full. Life is getting too cheap in this country, and lenience to convicted murderers is largely responsible. Hmm. Like, whoa, that's... Yeah, that's uh, intense. Yeah. And here's it's just something I want to say about yeah. not this letter, but the like the letters that are you know trying to get his sentence commuted. And he's such mm-hmm. a good when I met him, he's such a good kid, and right. he cares for his mother. And what I think it's not taking into account is the idea that people can be both good and bad. Right. I think that Douglas Van Vat could have been you know a hard worker. Well, we know he wasn't a hard worker, but when people knew him, he could have been a hard worker, and he could really care for his mother, and he could also do these really horrible things. Right. You know, I think especially in in prison systems we try to paint people in black or white you Mm. are a criminal or you are not um you are bad or you are good and that's not the way that humans are right and so i think we need to kind of keep that in mind is that it is possible that he was a good kid and Mm -hmm. it's it's obviously if he gets executed it's going to devastate his parents Mm -hmm. because they love him and because he loves them but that doesn't mean that he didn't have that bad part of him yeah yeah the letters are are a great testament Mm -hmm. to that because these are people who are like i knew him as a kid he Mm -hmm. was great or i knew him and i saw him change with his relationship with mildred they are pretty insightful to Mm -hmm. this time period like Mm -hmm. there's this man this is eight days before his execution this man in, in nampa said he canvassed the town and basically found to a man that they are strong in their belief that the law should take the course in the Van Vlack case. And the sentiment seems to be the same all over the state. Pardon me if I'm out of place in this matter, but take it from me. I believe I am justified in stating to you that in case you commute the sentence of this three times murder, your political career will terminate abruptly, as you will be acting in direct variance to the will and judgment of the people. Two days after that, Ethelyn Goodman, who writes my favorite letter of the whole thing, she's from Pocatello, she writes this one to the Secretary of State saying, This is a disgusting attempt to flout justice at the expense of all except the criminal element, for no end of justice or humanity can be achieved by prolonging such a menacing life, a life which will always be a menace, according to the admission of his own defenders. I am far from a bloodthirsty individual. For most of my life having been opposed to capital punishment under any form or condition but the fact of life shows that we are rapidly degenerating into a race of insane criminals by preserving such blood stock and this man is young enough to do a deal of damage of many kinds if he is permitted to continue 
And then she continues her thoughts in another letter that day to the governor of Idaho, stating, Law and order are perilously near a breakdown all over this country, particularly here in Idaho. And it would be hard to imagine anything that would be more discouraging to our peace officers than to turn this man free. And she discusses sending him to the state hospital and how that's a bad idea. And then she says, just what good is an incurably homicidal insane person to himself or anybody else? How many more lives do you want him to take? How much more money should be spent to prolong the menace of such a human mad dog? Please have a little mercy on the decent public, the peace officers, and allow us all to retain a few shreds of respect for the administration of our duly constituted laws. Citizens are becoming very much disgusted and embittered by these reversals of justice on behalf of the pampered persons. Mm. And the youth of this country get an idea that if they can get a hold of money and four wheels under them, that they can defy all so-called laws with complete impunity. Mm. So he goes for his sixth and final appeal on December 7th, and the newspaper stated that attorneys for Douglas Van Vlack, Tacoma, Washington, triple killer, appealed for the sixth time tonight to the Supreme Court to save their bushy-haired client from the gallows. It failed, and he is set to hang at 12.10 a.m. on Friday, December 10th, 1937. He's in there for two years after this murder, two mm-hmm. years and 15 days before his his day of reckoning. And his lawyers actually worked right up to the 11th hour trying to get a reprieve from the governor and the board. Warden William Jess had a new hydraulic mechanism created in an elevator shaft in the shirt factory for Douglas's execution. Hmm. And he created this system. Actually, it's probably somewhere here where we are right now. And basically, when Douglas would stand on this shaft, he'd have the noose around his neck. Mm -hmm. The warden and and two others, probably correctional officers, would push the button with him simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And one of those buttons would be the active one that actually flips the... So they wouldn't know who, yeah, who huh. actually set off the trap that led to his execution. Huh. So they've got this this newfangled device created, you know, just for this execution. And on the evening of December 9th, 1937, at 6.30 p.m., a reverend from St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Boise named Frank Ray visits and gave Douglas his last sacrament. And right after that, his parents, Edna and Carl, visit. They leave him at 7.12 p.m. After kissing him and departing, the one guard on duty turned his back to lead the saddened parents away from Douglas, who suddenly darted from his cell and scaled to the top of the cell house. The guard said, I grabbed for him, but he was too fast and scaled the side of the cell block like a flash. For half an hour, the warden, guards, and attorneys yelled up to Douglas to come down. They pleaded with him. Douglas yelled to the warden, I won't come down unless you get me a reprieve. The warden urged guards to grab a net, noting later that he didn't have the authority to shoot Douglas down Mm -hmm. from the rafters. When the guard returned, Douglas ran to the opposite side of the building and at 7.42 p.m. shouted, My mother told me it was all right for me to choose the way I wanted to die. You'll never see me swinging at the end of a rope. I have the right to choose the way I will die. And he dove face first 30 feet into the pavement below. In front of the warden, four guards... Uh, Reverend Arvid Ornell of Tacoma, his spiritual advisor, uh, his attorney, and several of the 15 prisoners that were in the cell house at the time. This is, sorry, 1890 cell house, right? This is 1890 okay. cell house, and exactly. his par- So yeah. his parents, they 
even though I imagine they would have been still in the building when he climbs to the top, they don't mm. let them stay and watch. The, I saw conflicting things. Oh, that okay. this, one article said that they were witness of it, and others said that they had left. They, they were like in the administration building when he went up there. So he lands face first on his right shoulder and his head Ugh. in the pavement 30 feet below. He's still alive. He yeah. doesn't immediately die. Yeah. The prison physician actually has his body moved onto a mattress and pushed mm. up against the wall. And newspapers mention that his neck is broken and in such a way that a hangman might have broken it. So it was just snapped Ugh. in like a similar way. And he just lay there unconscious, making this haunting breathing sound for about four hours. The warden waited to have Douglas hanged as soon as he was conscious, he said. And at 12.10 a.m., the scheduled oh time for the hanging, gosh. he said, we might have to postpone it temporarily until Douglas is in good enough shape to be hanged. Yeah. Finally, Douglas is pronounced dead at 12.32 a.m. About an hour later, this ambulance comes and takes Douglas's body to the McBratney funeral parlors where half a razor blade is actually found in his upper lip. What? After he's dead, yeah. No way. And authorities went through his cell and found another full razor blade in his cell. So they, th he was gonna. He was doing it some way. Exactly. Yeah. My, you know, my mother told me it was all right if, for me to choose the way I wanted to die, and he was gonna do it one way or the other. They don't know how he got the razor blades. There's a lot of speculation that she actually gave them to him. Oh wow. Ugh. I don't know how I feel about this. Right. Yeah. So they, they question the warden, and he actually says, I'm rather glad it happened this way. I don't like to hang a man. Okay, that's a little yeah. heartless. So at the age of 33, on December 10th, 1937, which also happens to be my birthday. Happy again, birthday. Thank you. <laughs> but this is like the third time that we've come across my birthday this season. That's He's pronounced dead from internal uh, hemorrhage and internal injuries and concussion of the brain probable like, fracture of the skull and a fractured like, vertebrae swelled up in his oh, head and oh my gosh yeah. and i mean this this plunge appears in newspapers all across the country ogden utah san mateo california abilene texas kalispell montana reno nevada san antonio texas albuquerque new mexico syracuse new york kokomo indiana i mean I'm not going to continue on this list. It goes Zanesville, Ohio. It just keeps going. <laughs> I was just like, oh, so many hundreds of pages of newspaper to read. Yeah. And all of them are so... Horrible. Horrible, yes. <laughs> so his body is shipped to Tumwater, Washington, and he is actually buried in the Oddfellows Memorial Park and Mausoleum. And... This leads to a shakeup at the prison. Uh, a week-long fight begins to oust Warden William Jess, and he refuses to resign. So the Attorney General, J.W. Taylor, actually files an application for a writ of mandate to remove him for asserted habitual laxities in management. That's a uh, light thing for what happened, but uh, they, they start to investigate. They actually name Deputy Warden Rex Smith as acting warden until this all could settle, and they actually discovered $1,700 missing from prison books, uh -oh. adding that there's a laxness in everything, even the bookkeeping at the prison. 
Warden Jess actually states in his defense that I would have to have a heart of stone to refuse a mother permission to bid her son a final farewell outside his cell. So that's how he felt about the whole situation. The governor actually supports the warden and thought it was improper how he was removed. And actually, he states that the board can't just walk around with a redheaded girl, who was the prison board secretary, and squat down anywhere for a meeting. I didn't call any meeting. They just walked into my office and took a vote. So it was like this this huge ordeal. And the warden is a political appointment Mm -hmm. appointed by the governor. So Mm -hmm. he is kind of protecting himself once again. Uh, Finally, William Jess realizes that this is not going to go well. So he tenders his resignation on December 21st, 1937, less than two weeks after Van Vleck's death. E.T. Meredith, the former Buell resident and former United States Secretary of Agriculture, was named the new warden on January 6th, 1938. If you actually come to the old pen and go to the back half of the women's ward outside the wall, mm-hmm. Under William Jess, the warden, he actually expanded the women's ward, the Mm -hmm. prison yard Mm -hmm. for the women. And you can actually see a plaque that says William Jess, December 1937, Mm -hmm. which just happened to be a terrible month for him. But (laughs) uh, his name is still prominently listed there uh, as a capstone up on the back of the wall. So, whoa. (sighs) Wow. Yikes. That was... I mean, very good research on your part, but um, the worst story. Yeah. (laughs) Like horrible. This is a sensationalized story. It's very easy to sensationalize. So I just wanted this to be like, like everything here, you don't have to make things up. Like the story itself is horrific. Just terrible. Yeah. Horrible is what I was going to say. (laughs) Just terrible and horrible. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah, well, that is the story oof. of Douglas Van Black, and I apologize to everybody because it's it's a horrible story. It's very and bad. It's. But we are taking out season two with a bang. Yes. Oh, with a thud. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh gosh. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> Were there any executions? Uh, you no, right no, I went out to witness one, uh, but he committed suicide. Art Johns was a cop, and so was I. And I don't remember who asked us to witness. We both said, yeah. I drove out there, and Gilbert was out there, and Tally, and he was quite nervous. But what the devil is so nervous about? He wouldn't even tell me then. That uh, foot fella, he'd, he'd got away from the yard, climbed up the tears up the top, walked out on a beam, and just hours before his execution. So then they, uh, he got the fireman to come in with a fireman's net, one of those nets you catch it in. He looked down and you see that, so he dove off head first. All right, so I have one, another one of our sort of famous ladies, famous girl, really. And thankfully, it is not as horrible oh. as... Uh, as what we just heard. Um, so I'm going to cover um, number 901, Ida Laherty. So sources, again, uh, inmate file, ancestry.com, chronicling America, just little bits of, of Wikipedia, and then intermountainhistories.org. I just use that really briefly um, for just a little snippet uh, in here. And so Ida was born probably November or December 1886 in Washington Territory, Mm -hmm. probably near Whitman, which is in Walla Walla County, and that county borders Idaho near Moscow, Mm -hmm. actually. 
um, and that's going to come into play later. Her parents were Charles Edward, um, he went by C.E., and Mary Laherty, and Ida was the second oldest of seven children. Mm-hmm. And if I remember the order correctly, it was Ida's older sister, mm-hmm. her uh, sister, I think the three boys were all right in a row, and then another sister. Nice. If I remember right, I yeah. might be a little incorrect on that, but... Either way, four girls, three boys, it's a lot of kids. Um, She was raised in a Catholic family, so that the high number makes sense. She attended school for less than two years. She didn't specify why she didn't attend for longer, but she only went for two years. And then Mm. at some point, the family moved across the state border to the Kootenai Valley and resided halfway between Port Hill, which is a little unincorporated territory, and Bonners Ferry in Boundary County. So they're way up north, right near Canada hanging out up there. So there was an article that I found in the Kootenai Herald on January 9th, 1897. And in this article, it details how Ida and her older sister and their parents attended a Christmas party thrown by a certain Mr. and Mrs. D.C. Black. Ida would have been about 10 or 11, and they just went and, and had a good time. And the article says that they, quote, participated in tripping the light fantastic toe. Oh which is a great way to say that they had a great old time dancing. Oh, okay. So, um... The light fantastic toe. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Tripping the light fantastic toe. That sounded like my New Year's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tripping the light fantastic toe at Absolutely. the potato drop. At the potato drop. Yeah. Yep. Have to. <laughs> <laughs> There's no other way to do it. There isn't. And so that was in uh, 1897, and then about a year and a half later, on August 14th, 1898, C.E. died of typhoid fever, leaving Mary and um, six kids alone. Uh, Ida's oldest sister, Etta, had actually already married, so she was out of the house, but still, Mary... Um, has six kids to try to take care of. And so in 1899, understandably, Mary marries a man named John W. Bertolf in Latah County. And then the family lived in St. Marie's, Idaho. And then within the next few years, the Bertolfs, um, which he didn't have any children, he didn't bring any children to the marriage, they moved to Reardon, Washington in Lincoln County, which is just outside of Spokane. Even with this marriage, the family still isn't very well off, and the mother has to start taking in wash to help make extra money to pay for herself and her six kids. So I think perhaps in, a, in an attempt to maybe get out of her mother's hair or in an attempt to try to get extra money to help out her family, in early 1902, Ida meets a man named William Lewis, who I believe was a few years older than her with a name like William Lewis in Washington County. It's very difficult to find. can only imagine. And, and uh, that may, na- may not even be his real name. Right. It's probably likely that it's not. Yeah. And so Ida at this time, early 1902, is about 15 probably pretty young and impressionable and also probably very in love um in the way that you know you sort of have with your first love when you're in high school Mm -hmm. or or middle school or whatever and so she starts to spend time with him and um he takes advantage of the fact that she is young and impressionable and so in late october 1902 william um goes from Reardon to Moscow, Idaho, crosses the border, and he scouts out some local livery stables. Then he has a plan. On October 21st, he sends for Ida, and Ida joins William in Moscow. And he says, all right, here's some money. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to rent a team of horses from this livery. You're going to drive them over the border uh, to Washington. I will meet you there. We'll sell the team, and we'll get away scot-free. 
Obviously, it works. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's a great plan. We never <laughs> yes, heard of Ida never, ever never again. heard of Ida ever again. <laughs> so she does that, and she rents a, a team of horses from the livery, and actually they drove together from Moscow to Oaksdale, Washington, which is north of Moscow, just kind of right across the border. And here he says, "All right, we're going to split up in case one of us is caught. You know, then the other one still can sort of, you know, follow out the plan." And she says, "Okay, great." So he says, take the team, go to Sprague, Washington. And Sprague is about 50 miles away from Oaksdale, sort of as the crow flies. It takes a little bit of extra time with the roads and everything, just mm-hmm. according to Google Maps. But once you get to Sprague, stay there. I'll meet you there again. We'll sell these horses. We'll get some money. Everything will be great. And as I put in my notes, boom, easy money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Ida does that. She drives the team to Sprague, where she stays with a friend. And and Reardon is about 30 miles away from Sprague, so it's not unlikely that she would have friends there. And so she's staying there with a friend, and a day passes, and another day passes, and another day passes. And a few days pass, and William never shows up. Oh, boy. Uh, You know who does show up? The police. Oh. The police show up. I haven't been able, able to figure out how the police knew that she was at that particular place. They probably followed. How many? I, w- I was going to say have? well, like, and I would imagine too, if it's because I mean, if it's like late October, yeah. it's going to be rainy or snowy. Right. So there's going to be mud. Um, that I would imagine that they were able to track the team. That's my guess. That yeah. has to be it. Yeah. Um, and then Phew. once they get to the house, she still got the horses. Oh, these horses. This, oh, oh, I don't. I don't I know where they always had these horses. <laughs> They're my pets. <laughs> Can you name all of them? Uh, what are the names of Santa's reindeer? I'm just kidding. I don't even know if they had that back then. So either way, Ida is arrested and extradited back to Moscow because that's where the crime was committed. Um, so I already went over the history of Moscow. This is Moscow 1902. This is sort of what I could come up with um, in terms of what's going on. The state is 12 years old because, as we know, it was established as a state in 1890. The University of Idaho is only about 10 years old. The doors open in 1892. This one actually was really interesting. In 1902, the Women's Reading Room Society established a library on the corner of Main and 2nd Streets. Oh. And the Women's Reading Room Society according to Wikipedia, was actually just a a New York-based society where um, essentially uh, women got together and and created these sort of reading rooms, I think, for for the public, but also sort of for themselves. It was sort of almost like an early bohemia sort of thing. And I, I couldn't figure out because again, this Wikipedia was um, article was very specific that it was just in New York society was like naming all these like really high profile women. And so I don't know if you know, people took this idea and spread it across the country. I couldn't find um, articles that talk about other women's reading room societies, but I do like the idea of it. You know, these women are really trying to sort of up the education of of other women and of young people and just people in general, Mm -hmm. and especially in sort of rural places like Idaho and like Washington. These Mm -hmm. are going to be important because not everyone can read and write. And I would bet Ida may have been one of them. And we'll get into a little bit sort of women's societies helping her out. So um, this Women's Reading Room Society sets up a library, and in 1905, our favorite Dale Carnegie offers the city $10,000 if they build a larger, free public library, 
and that library using the $10,000 was completed just a year later in 1906, and that is actually where the current Moscow Public Library still stands. Yeah. I think most large cities around this time will have a Carnegie Library. Ours is on, I think, Jefferson, and it's actually law offices now, mm. but it looks really nice inside. In Boise, yeah. 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 And then the 1900 population in Moscow was 2,484, so not small, but not huge either. So back to Ida. So she is arrested, put on trial on December 15th. She's found guilty of grand larceny and sentenced to one year at the Idaho State Penitentiary on January 10th, 1903. And I I couldn't find any records of the trials, even old, uh, not old, even uh, Idaho statesman articles didn't mention this trial at all, which is interesting. I don't know if it just wasn't big enough news like the only statesman articles that i found actually just talk about her release there aren't any about like her crime and her Mm -hmm. trial or anything like that so that was a bit of a bummer but yeah either way she's found guilty and she's put in the leta jail while she's waiting to be transported to the state penitentiary so while ida is waiting in the county jail a letter is written to the governor of idaho john morrison and this is what it reads it says honored sir i desire to call your attention to a case that will shortly be placed before the board of pardons a young girl ida laerty by name has been convicted of grand larceny and sentenced to one year in the state penitentiary by the district court in Lataw county i am sorry to say that the girl's worst sin is immorality the circumstances tend to show that she committed the theft at the instigation of some man who passed in the role of lover at that time the dense ignorance the youth and destitute condition of this young girl appeal to humanity for health, I think, but it's supposed to be for help. Um, a petition by the citizens of Lataw County will be presented to the Board of Pardons asking that she be pardoned and given to friends who will look after her. The Women's Christian Temperance Union of Moscow desire to place this idolatry in a rescue home where she be maybe trained and taught such things as will make her a useful woman. In the end, we pray that you will extend such execution clemency as the petition asks. And the letter assigned Mrs. Emma Lauder, who was the WCTU District Superintendent of Social Purity in the state of Idaho, which is a great title. Yeah, that's great. Superintendent of Social Purity. (laughs) And I don't believe that's a title that exists anymore. We are not as intent on, on sort of policing social purity anymore. But this is, you know, very much at the time when that was a big deal. Um, So it's important to note that sort of I think we tend to think of the WCTU, the Women's Women's Christian Temperance Union, as very important in the fight for prohibition. And they definitely were. But it's important to note that they were also almost on top of the prohibition thing, trying to promote a moral and clean society. That's really, I think, temperance, not just in alcohol consumption, but in every other aspect of your life. Right. Um, That was a a good target to go towards because it was obviously causing disruptions yes, in society all absolutely. the alcohol and everything yeah yeah saloons and-, and so in idaho the wctu interestingly they were also central to the fight for women's suffrage in mm-hmm. the state and if you want to read more about sort of how the wctu um, really got invested in the fight for women's suffrage there's an article on intermountainhistories.org and it's titled women's suffrage and temperance in idaho by sarah roundsville so feel free to check that out if you really want to get down this rabbit hole and this is equally sort of timely because 2020 is the 100th anniversary of women across the country getting the right to vote Woo! Um, which I do want to say is crazy that it's only been a hundred years, right. but it's been a hundred years. This is certainly something to celebrate. 
and and so I'm very excited about sort of all the events that are going to be happening around the Idaho State Historical Society this year. So keep your eyes open for that. There's going to be some really cool stuff, including a book about our female inmates yes. um, coming out. And so um, we're all very excited about that. Yeah, we are in the middle of editing that right now. Yeah. So that will come out on March 31st. So hopefully you all come down and buy the book, listen to a couple of presentations and, you know, learn a lot more about Idaho's history and, and learn about all the women that Sky has researched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to be fun. I'm, I wish I was here to sort of work on the book, but um, everyone has been quite gracious to sort of pass some responsibility off to mm-hmm. other people so that I can uh, be in my program. Yeah. But yeah, you're just like getting a PhD <laughs> or something. We'll, we'll just it's take whatever. your research and, you know, <laughs> So, uh, and, you know, thanks really in part to the WCTU, women in the state of Idaho gained the right to vote 24 years before the rest of the country in 1896, which is crazy. Yeah, like, that's, yeah. a long, that's a long time before other women got the right to vote. It's pretty amazing. And really at that cool. time, I mean, we, we also needed the numbers yes, of voters true. just so that we could be as like, like a state qualify and, for, yes, yeah. for congressional seats and things yeah, like that. Yeah, there were a lot, sure, a lot of single minors out here yes. and not a lot of... But you know what? Who cares? <laughs> no, yeah. Not to degrade it. Right. And and I think that they thought, oh, yeah, we'll give them the right, but we're not going to really let them, you know, have any power right. or anything. And then these groups, these WCTUs mm-hmm. came out and, you know, they actually brought forth a lot right. of legislation, yes. a lot of improved quality of life for women in Idaho and across and I, the country. It's I amazing. think, too, there was an assumption that women are just going to vote the way their husbands yeah, vote. And I absolutely. think... Um, that that's not the case. And mm-hmm. I think these, you know, these women sort of time and again proved that. And right. so thank you to the WCTU for that, mm-hmm. especially here so in the state cool. of Idaho. But regardless of the WCTU's efforts, Ida still entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on January 20th, 1903. So her statistics, and she actually is one who has sort of a larger intake form. Uh She uh, was 16 years old when she was received. Um, She was born in Washington, uh, had no legitimate occupation listed because she was 16. Mm -hmm. She had a a dark complexion. Uh, Her height is not listed, nor is her weight. She had dark brown hair. She had gray eyes, uh, single um, her father was not living, died when the prisoner was 11. Her mother was living, and the prisoner left her parents' home when she was about 15 years old, which is sort of around the same time. She had religious instruction, attended Sunday school growing up in the Catholic Church. She did not consider herself Catholic any longer. She can read and write, um, but she didn't have a common school education. She only attended school for two years. There isn't actually a mark for um, habits of life. So I don't know if they just assumed she was young enough that they didn't have to ask that question. I think that's probably a safe assumption. Obviously, no former imprisonment. The name of uh, and address of her nearest relative was Mrs. Mary Bertolf in Reardon, Washington. Don't have any Bertillion on her. Mm -hmm. uh, Pretty common. And then I think, it you know, property found on convict, they actually just wrote uh, nothing. So, so, yeah. That's, uh, unfortunately, that's sort of all we have on her intake. Um, but actually, after she got in to the prison, it didn't really take long for the Board of Pardons to agree that Ida maybe didn't deserve to be in the prison for a full year. And so she was granted a full and unconditional pardon starting on April 21st, 1903. Most everyone was on board with this. They said mm-hmm. clearly she was influenced by this older man. 
the WCTU is really on her side saying, listen, we can take her in, we can help her learn better skills that, so that she can be a successful adult when mm -hmm. she, you know, kind of becomes of age. And so we, we would happily do that. But there's one letter that comes in. Not everyone is so enthusiastic about this. This oh. is a fascinating letter. And I apologize. This is going to be the biggest run-on sentence. There is no punctuation. Oh, yeah. And also everything is misspelled. I'm going to do my best. And there was one part that I couldn't... It was too... The cursive was crazy. Um, and I sort of... You know, the more you look at cursive, the more you can... Especially this old-time cursive, yeah. you can really start to read it. But this was crazy. So bear with me for a moment as I just get out this big run-on sentence. This letter is actually from the owner of the livery from which Ida and William stole the horses. So it says, quote, I see in the Lewiston Tribune that there is a law to be passed to give the Board of Pardons the power to release all the thieves under 18 years old, and also freedom is in sight for the 16-year-old girl Ida Laherty from Moscow. If ever a convict deserved punishment, it is her. There is no doubt... She was put up to steal her horses by a man, and she was offered pardon on the condition she would tell where he was. This country is overrun with these young thieves, and these old thieves use them for tools in their business. That law will learn them to steal anything they can lay their hands on. If ever there was anyone sent to the pen that deserved going there, it was Ida Laherty that ran away with our team. She would have been turned loose if she um, would have told us who put her up to steal our team. It is true that it don't cost our representatives anything to pass laws to protect us, and that is what we send them for. And on the same head, they have the power to make a law to turn all these young thieves loose. But it cost me $125 to bring Ida Laherty to justice. Although she is a poor 16-year-old, not capable of knowing she was stealing horses, the old thieves would ask nothing better. They can use them as their tools to run off horses for them. If this young lady would make a clean breast of it, and then there's something illegible I can read, if she had one which every honest man in this country that knows anything about it but thinks as I do, there is a man at the bottom of it. And the name is blocked out. That's to protect, you know, his identity. Yeah. So he's not happy. Yeah. There is a law that is being passed, and I apologize and look into what law that was. I think I was right at the end of my finals, and so I didn't dig into that quite like I should have. But, you know, kind of dealing with these juvenile criminals, and I think Ida's case in particular is thought of kind of highly yeah. but this owner of the livery is not having any of it yeah. which is interesting though in his letter he's saying i know that she was put up by someone she was being used right and i would have basically dropped charges if she just said who it was which i think again sort of lends credence to the fact that she was probably very 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 in love with him mm -hmm. So Emma Lauder, as she said in her letter, she had promised that a petition was going to come in with signatures. Um, not just one petition came in, many, many petitions came in from the people of Moscow and Laytaw County asking for clemency for Ida because she was such a young girl who was right. clearly under the influence of this criminal. And there were at least 100 signatures Jeez. on this uh, and really just page after page after page of signatures. And so there are clearly people most people are on her side, but this livery owner is saying she needs to be held responsible. If she's not going to tell us who really is behind it, then she needs to be held accountable for right. it. Um, that that phrase of like, if there's anyone who deserves to be independent, it's her. Uh -huh. I don't agree. <laughs> I don't think if anyone deserves, but I, I mean, she did do something wrong. And, and so I, you know, I think she was willing to own up to it. it. The account of the crime comes from her and she basically says like, you know, I I did do something wrong and, and I have a mother and my mother has six kids that she's trying to take care of and I'm just trying to help her. But, you know, it doesn't doesn't make it right. And she kind of is following that 
old west cattle rustler like mm-hmm. you don't snitch on anybody right. it's the same convict code right. you, don't, you don't tell on anybody yeah, which mean, is kind of i wonder though if that was the reason for it right. like yeah. you know she doesn't seem like she was around uh she actually seems like a pretty genuine person that i think even if this boyfriend this william mm-hmm. had been arrested i don't think he would have necessarily told her that or maybe he did or yeah. said like i love you please don't snitch on me you know yeah. something like that because it is very interesting that she would not give up his name yeah. which i think if i was a 16 year old who was like listen we'll let you go if you tell us who did i'd be like oh, okay right it was this jerk who told me that he loved me and clearly doesn't you know yeah yeah. Um, but maybe she also genuinely thought that just something had happened to him. Mm-hmm. You know, we always want to see the best in the people that we love. Right. So, <sighs> so that was the most interesting letter I thought that came in. So fascinating. Yeah. But this letter doesn't change much because Ida is released on April 21st, 1903. And this is according to an article from the Lewiston Teller on April 24th. Ida was immediately sent to what is called the Crittenton Home in Boise while she waited to be sent back to Moscow. Do you know what a Critton, Critton home, never Crittenton Crittenton Home is? Okay, Crittenton? So, yeah, so it's C-R-I-N-T-T-E-N-T-O-N. Crittenton. So a Crittenton home in Boise, this was the local branch of the National Florence Crittenton Mission, established in 1883 by a man named Charles N. Crittenton and named after his four-year-old daughter who died of scarlet fever in 1882. And the Crittenton Mission, um, they were mostly homes to an attempt to reform prostitutes and unwed pregnant mothers. Interesting. Um, At its peak, it had 76 homes across the country and had even expanded into China, France, Japan, and Mexico. So this is a kind of an international um, thing. And she's not a prostitute. And as far as we know, she's not an unwed pregnant (laughs) mother. So she probably was just sent to the Crittenton home, maybe because of sort of the lover label that William gets, this immorality that the WC, that Emma Lauder talked about. Mm. But I I also wonder if it just was because it sort of housed a lot of young women around her age and she just needed a temporary place to stay until the WCTU uh, Moscow, Mm -hmm. you know, people could come and, and pick her up. Yeah. And you would think that Ida had a nice, simple stay before returning to Moscow with these local philanthropic women, but that is not the case. In the same Lewiston Teller article that talked about her being in the, the Crittenden home, I'm going to read you the whole thing because it's really fascinating. Oh, cool. oh, really yeah. fascinating. Yeah, no, Do you know I've this article? This. Okay. No, I don't oh, know it's so cool. All right. So, a sensation has been caused by the discovery of a plot by a former convict to spirit away Ida Laherty, the girl sent from Laytock County for horse stealing and who was pardoned Tuesday. The girl was placed in the care of the matron of the Crittenden home until arrangements could be made for sending her home. The girl has received letters signed by a Mrs. Davis, tendering sympathy and assistance. Wednesday, the matron was called on the telephone by a man who said his name was Davis and he was an uncle of the girl. He said owing to the illness of his wife, she was unable to call in person. He said he would send his two little girls after Ida, whom he wanted to come live with him. Becoming suspicious, Mrs. Barrett drew from the girl the confession that Davis was Fred Marshall, who we recently discharged from who was recently dis- discharged from the penitentiary oh, after no. serving two years. The girl said Marshall wished to marry her, but she did not care for him. She had never spoken to Marshall, she said, excepting once through a prison window. A guard reprimanded her and threatened to board up the window if she offered again. Attorney Green of Moscow, who represents the child's mother, was immediately communicated with and is on the way to Moscow to take charge of the girl. Ida Laity was convicted last January and sentenced to one year in prison. The board was flooded with petitions for her release, which were signed by hundreds of prominent people. 
So Fred Marshall, he entered the penitentiary in 1901 for assault with a deadly weapon. He was also double her age. Yikes. Um, So with this essentially kidnapping attempt thwarted, Ida finally left Boise for Moscow on April 29th. That's such a fascinating that is crazy. plot. I'm so glad that there wasn't another crime committed or anything right. after this. Right, oh. yes. Eek. And I wonder if he got in trouble for sort of this plot. If he's out, he's probably on... Is he on parole? Did that... It kind of depended, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he served his minimum sentence. Was that two years? Um, It said two years, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, but yeah, so... Yeah. Um, she returns to Moscow with the help of the women of the Moscow WCTU. She is returned to her family. In the 1910 census, Ida is living with her family in Greer, Idaho, on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation. And they have a huge household. It's wow. huge. Um, so she's got her mom, her stepdad, her five siblings, one brother-in-law, a nephew, and two half-sisters that have been born between her mom and her stepdad. Her two half-sisters were nine and one years old, and there was also a male boarder. So there's 13 people all together in this house. So I I don't know if perhaps maybe her stepfather came into money, if they're sort of able to keep afloat with the boarder. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure, but that's a lot of people, and especially in the fact that that Ida is is now definitely of age. So she hasn't married yet, Mm -hmm. and and I'm not really actually sure where Ida goes after this. Her stepfather died in 1913, so three years after this uh, census, which means her youngest sister was only like four years old when her father died, which is really sad. But her mother remarried again in 1915 to a man named Sam Eby. And you know, on Ancestry.com, and and this may be useful for anyone who's listening who uses Ancestry.com or who wants to, it's really nice because... Uh, recommended records will pop up if it's you know especially for women this is so so useful because their their names will change mm-hmm. men uh, unless they're deliberately changing their names won't have the same issue but with women if they get married and you, you're not going to know their their married name but uh, so these recommended sort of records will pop up and so there was a recommended ancestry record that places her in san francisco california in 1937 under the name mrs ida m murphy I tried to look up just because there when you clicked on it, there was nothing else that that really popped up to sort of corroborate this, which is so oh, frustrating. Oh. Um, I tried to search Ida M. Murphy. There was actually someone who was born around the same time in Washington, but she was married. She was married to a man named Dennis Murphy. But this was not her because she was already married in the 1910 census. Mm. So unfortunately, that was not her. I was very Damn frustrated. Um, there were also some um, if I clicked on a certain record, um, some other recommended ones would pop up with the name Ida Bertolf mm. um, but that was actually were immigration records so that wasn't her either <laughs> Duh, so frustrating oh. so I mean if this is her she lives at least until till 1937 which oh. would make her uh, she'd actually be about 50 I think at that point yeah. into 37 so should, we do know that if this is her then she lives into her 50s in California which is kind of neat and she got married mm. so that's kind of all I could find with her but she had a really fascinating, um, you know, brief, what we do know about her is is simple, but really kind of, a, a, I think, a rich story. Yeah. So. Yeah. And she would have been in with, what, Susie Duffy and. Yes. Most famous. I can Josie see her Kensler. Oh, Josie. Yeah, and then Josie. also um, 
But yes, Josie, um, and Josie actually took Ida under her wing. I talk mm. about that a little bit in the Josie episode, which is episode two yeah. of our first season. That, you know, because Ida was so young, and I think Ida clearly, I imagine as a 16-year-old girl who just did something because her boyfriend told her she probably came in dazed and confused was you know the absolute embodiment of that phrase just i don't know what i'm doing here i clearly did something wrong and so josie who at this point had been in for at least a year took her under her wing to sort of help her out and and say like listen you'll be okay and and so yes uh she would have been in with josie and with uh susie duffy and i should have looked but there i think there were a few others that were in there with her Yeah. yeah But that's that's what I've got. Uh, I wish it was. It's not quite fourteen pages. Oh gosh. Um, but again, you know, in the fact that you Douglas Wayne Black had a box of files, and Ida, yeah. Ida had the most in her were actually the the petitions with mm-hmm. signatures. Yeah, and um, I didn't mention he actually had a ream of petition oh, really? signatures calling for the commutation to life as well. Okay. So, I mean, it's it's common in these files. Mm-hmm. I, Idaho is not big on the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in all of those files, there are people calling for them to be commuted to yeah. life and not to be executed. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, there are very few, at least in in terms of women, Lida didn't Lida, have any. Yeah. I don't think because it was pretty clear that she had done some very bad things. I think yeah. she lost sympathy when it was sort of insinuated she may have killed her child as well. Right. Which if you haven't listened to that, that's episode 10. So the very last episode of last season. So mm-hmm. feel free to check that out. That's all I've got. Um, yeah. Hopefully, because uh, there are some women who have sort of bigger stories. So I will try to, to focus on some of those a bit more next season. If you guys want to hear another season, let us know. We'd love any feedback. Hopefully, we, ironically, I think we finally fixed sort of the issues with our technical long distance. Yes, I think we finally figured that out right before I came back. So hopefully we can continue that. Um, So if that is is feedback, I definitely know that we are working on that. But any content feedback or questions or anything you have, feel free to email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. Leave a comment for us on the Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you guys. Yeah. I had fun this season, Anthony. Did you? Oh, my gosh. It was a blast. <laughs> I learned so much stuff. And I just wanted to thank our listener, Lisa Anderson Owens, for asking us to do Van Vlack because I had a couple different ideas. And I, it's always hard. Like, what What do you want to do, Sky? Yeah. I don't know. What should I do? <laughs> should it be more murder right. or less murder this episode? Right. And, you know, Lisa said, hey, please cover this guy. Wow. After and posted a comment on our Facebook group. And so it was like, okay, that was on my birthday. And I remember going, it's decided that is going to be the season finale for me anyway. There so you go. yeah, shout out to you, Lisa Owens. And thank you for posting and listening. And, and yeah, feel free to use our Facebook group to ask for recommendations or mm-hmm. ask for us to talk about certain things on the show that are going yeah. on in Idaho. Cause that's something that I'd like to personally learn, know more about. And if, if you want to hear about it, I'd like to learn about it and talk about it. So yeah. Did you hear about this body yeah. that was found in the cave? Oh my Do gosh. you know if that was, if he was here? That Loveless? he was, I don't believe he was. I, so I know we did a bunch of exhibits a couple of years ago on all of them. It was for Valentine's day. Yeah. It was on all the men who had love in their name, uh-huh. but I don't think he was ever incarcerated here. And if he was, it, it was under an alias. Cause that is a spooky like yes. picture that they have. And like a whole spooky yeah. because is it that his head was missing? Yeah. Ugh, yeah. Scary. They used DNA to just draft Damn. up an idea of what he may have looked like. 
And yeah, thank you, Anne-Marie DeWolf, for posting that. And it was awesome to meet you. It was so cool to meet you when you came to the old pen earlier this year. So cool to meet you guys. Feel free to say hi to us. I'm Most, around mostly Boise. Mostly Anthony, yeah. Yeah, Sky's in town regularly. And uh, also, J.D. Wade, thank you for posting about Joseph Munch. He's one of my favorites. And yeah, I love that you sent all that information about him. He is a fascinating character mm-hmm. that I plan on hitting. And I have a couple episodes lined up for next season about some of our wardens and correctional officers yeah love to get on that and we'll talk about joseph munch Mm -hmm. all right and then stay tuned um if you aren't on our facebook page stay tuned we will have some exciting um news coming down the pipe some exciting behind gray walls news can't quite reveal or don't want to reveal yet what that is but Mm -hmm. it's very exciting um (laughs) i'm very excited about it because for certain reasons but anyway so just keep an eye out for that and yeah we'll be back in i don't know two months or so and yeah. give us some time to try to stay ahead of of the the episodes which we did not do a great job of this season but there were yes. lots of sort of obstacles that got in the way of that yeah um but yes we would love to hear from you and uh, any feedback or any compliments or or non-compliments you have you know we are happy to to take that so thank you all for listening it's been so fun i've loved doing this podcast and i too i i I think it's crazy this support that we've gotten and the listens that we've gotten and and so we just want to thank all of you for that it's crazy to think that we only started this in july and you know we are really like have a lot of listens and people supporting us and and we're so thankful for that so absolutely yeah, I uh, went in wanting just to do this for myself, and it's so cool that other people like it. Yes. And I just oh, appreciate you all so much. Mm-hmm. When when Ooh. I went in to Anthony and I said we should do a podcast, <laughs> uh, you know he we wanted to and we we bandied back and forth forever. Mm-hmm. How should we do it? Do we just start recording? Do we right. need to get permission? What do we do? And I do want to say like I'm so thankful to jan and the whole idaho state historical society for really supporting us in this because it literally is not possible without you and your support so thank you to everyone there and and just so thankful for for all the support that makes this possible because i have loved it even even it's one of the been one of the highlights of of living in texas so far is being able to stay connected and uh and do this for myself and anthony and for all of our listeners so ah. <laughs> all right <laughs> Woo. well happy 2020 everybody uh make it a good year yep do your own time do your own number and we will talk to you all soon Woo. <laughs> if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe so others can find our podcast If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.